0: long-told radio.
1: This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell
2: from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz.
3: Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn
4: Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the Great Entertainment Talk Show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having. Me. This is
3: Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah, oh, this is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi,
4: everyone,
1: this is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz.
2: Guys, welcome to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It's Tuesday, October 19th, 2010, 10 p.m. in the East, 7 p.m. out West, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and I am so excited about this show tonight. You know, regular listeners of this show know this, but newer listeners may not know that I got my start with this show through working with a wonderful woman who has become a dear friend of mine, the incredible Joanne Kubasek, who hosts a terrific program on this same network entitled Stardust Radio. Shortly after Stardust debuted two and a half years ago, Joanne was interviewing the great soap actress Judy Evans one evening, and Joanne has told the story many times, but the conversation wasn't really going anywhere because she wasn't that familiar with Judy's work, and I just happened upon the show and called in because I was intimately familiar with Judy's work and was thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with her. We ended up staying on the phone gabbing the three of us for well over an hour, and as a result of that, Joanne and I stayed in contact and became fast friends. And in short order, I began writing guest intros for Stardish and doing guest research, and even co-hosting with her often. And even though I started my own show in January of 2009, Joanne and I still work together when the occasion calls for it, and there have even been multiple occasions over the past couple years whereupon Joanne handed me the reins of Sardish entirely, asking me to step in as guest host whenever she couldn't make it for whatever reason. In corresponding with fans of my own show, I try to turn their attention to these episodes of Stardish whenever I think a certain installment may be of interest based on whichever topic my fans broach with me. And sometimes there is confusion about how to find and listen to Joanne's show. So with her very gracious and generous permission, I have chosen four such conversations that I conducted on Stardish with a quartet of my and your favorite soap stars past and present. Matt Walton of One Life to Live, Michael Sutton from General Hospital, Sandra Robinson, Late of Another World, and the brilliant Kim Zimmer, formerly of Guiding Light, and uh, just returned to one life. And I've compiled the most interesting and relevant parts of those interviews into an episode of my own show. The full versions of these interviews can, of course, be found at Sardish's main website, which I will tell you how to find at the end of this show. For now, I really hope that you enjoy this taste of Joanne's program and of how your humble host here behaves when he breaks free from the comfortable confines of his own show. First up tonight, I did two interviews on the Buzz last year with former One Life star Brett Claywell, and both of them are among my five most listened to episodes. We did the first of them in June of last year, just days prior to the announcement that One Life would be embarking on a groundbreaking gay storyline featuring his character, and when Brett returned to the show in October, I playfully coveted about the freakishly awful timing of that initial conversation. Well, earlier this year, a similar thing happened to me with One Life star Matt Walton, whom I spoke with on Starish back in June, only a few weeks Before his character, seemingly upstanding legal eagle Eli Clark Morphed into Landview's psychopathic mastermind And even though we talked at great length about his role on the show and the storyline And surely he knew where things were headed later in the summer He didn't let on a bit during the interview That his character was about to become the villain to end all villains on the show Uh, Matt and I had a terrific conversation that night about his life His career, his commercial and voiceover work And of course, as you're about to hear, his arrival in Landview My guest tonight is definitely an actor on the rise. He's taken on a number of high-profile roles in such theater classics as Hair and A Few Good Men, and he's worked steadily in primetime and in film over the past decade. But he's found his greatest success, at least of late, on daytime television, where he is currently setting the town of Landview, PA, on fire with his terrific work as attorney Elijah Clark on ABC's One Life to Live. And he's come by the buzz tonight, or he's come by the show tonight, the buzz. I'm already saying the buzz. It's stardish. He's come by Stardish tonight to tell us all about it. You know, this guy's a fabulous actor and he's got a fascinating story and I ask you all to give a warm stardish welcome to the terrific Matt Walton.
1: Hey, everybody.
2: How you doing, sir? I'm
1: very well. Thank you. How are you tonight? Doing very well. Welcome to the show. Thanks. excited to Thanks. be here.
2: So uh, talk, to, talk to me about Elijah. How did, how did this come into your life? How did, this, how, did this, how did you get this role? How did this happen?
1: This was something... Uh, the economy was in the tank. My wife and I were trying to get pregnant with our second child, and I really needed a job. I really needed to come back and get a TV show. It was sort of... The commercial market had, had, had taken a dive... and. So this thing came up, and it was uh, just a recurring, a couple weeks recurring, and uh, it was a lawyer, and I said to myself before I even got the script, I said, I am going to get this job. I'm going to be all my peers in this city. And it was, it's amazing when, you know, even, uh, who did I get to act with? Uh, some of the people that they can get on these shows, uh, the caliber of actors that I was up against, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying uh, everyone wanted this job. Everyone wants every job that comes up on the sofa. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you otherwise, because, you know... <laughs>
2: well, I mean, family especially family. now in New York, the way, the way television jobs are leaving the city, I mean, it's, it must be tougher and tougher. I mean, the roles must get more and more coveted.
1: Absolutely. No matter what Absolutely. the role is. Absolutely. You know, and then Guiding Light got canceled, and all those sure. guys were trying to grab the, the roles that were on as the world turned. Then as the world turns gets canceled, and everyone's trying to gather the roles. as on One Life to Live, and all my children. And all my children moved to L.A. I mean, it used to be, as far as I could tell... It was explained to me if you're on a soap and you chose to have a career in soaps, that, yet, you know, you may never win your Oscar, but at least you're going to be employed for the rest of your life, right? Sure. On one or another, there were 15 when I was uh, getting into the business, and then year after year, they kept disappearing or you what have you. And so that sense of security was also lifted. So it just. You know, it changed the dynamic, made it more competitive. Everyone, you know, people were taking pay cuts, and as a result, I think people are getting better and better. I don't know; it, it seems to me. But uh, yeah, so uh, the breakdown came out for Eli. Uh, it was Elijah Kent at first. I remember that, and I don't know why they changed from Clark to Kent. But I like the Superman reference anyway. Uh, so I, uh, I decided I'm going to get this part, and I had this uh three-piece suit that i'd gotten on some commercial job was gorgeous i'm like i'm I'm gonna wear this three-piece suit i'm gonna smack this out and uh i went in and i i i've been in for julie madison i don't know half a dozen times before if not more than that for various other parts and uh, she's like good matt good job as always you know poker face and then uh the next day, or the next week, or something like that, was um, we didn't even do a screen test. We just went right to Frank Valentini, the executive producer. Just went right to his office to audition. And when I got to the callback, it was all you know, it was the rogues gallery of my competition in the city. They were all there. So I'm like, oh, I really need this job. I really have to get this job. Focus, Matt, focus. And I walked in, and you know, I just convinced Frank right away that I was the
2: guy. You know. Uh, we see this all the time on soaps. You know, they bring in a new character, they're not really quite sure what they're gonna do with him, so they you know, they, they play him in, you know several different storylines and situations and with different characters and just kinda, of, you know, throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Right. Talk to me about what goes through an actor's mind when, when you're in that kind of situation and you don't really know what's coming and, you know, your training is you're supposed to know and care about the arc of the character and the motivation and all of that. Talk to me what goes through, uh, about what goes through your mind when you're in the situation where you don't know day-to-day what's going to happen next and what's coming down the pike.
1: You know, that's kind of the situation that an actor is in all the time anyway. Even successful ones, even super wealthy ones, you know, okay, now I've got the money, what's my next part? <clears throat> you know, it, it's it's just, that's just part of the lifestyle. So you kind of accept it. There's a whole bunch of given circumstances when doing a soap that happens to be one of them. You just accept it. Try to do the best job you can. Don't take anything personally because it's not, you know, uh, and just hope you uh, focus group well because uh, <laughs> that seems to be the the new way people uh, keep their jobs. <laughs> by the listen, by the time you're on set and you're in costume and you're you're getting your two takes in, whether or not you're going to be there tomorrow isn't on your mind. You know, <laughs> it might be on your way home. Ooh, gee, that one. <laughs> It's an interesting dynamic. You know, definitely people's attitudes toward me changed, not because anyone was rude or not, but it was because they didn't want to get close or become friends with someone that wouldn't be there the next day. Absolutely. You know? uh, and that's tough. That's tough. You know, when that last round of firings went on, you know, you'd run into some of the guys who were leaving in the hall and they, they saw a couple episodes left or whatever. You're just like, ah, oh, I don't even know what to say, you know. <laughs> I dodged a bullet. My character ends up with the, you know, the hottie on the show, and and you you went, you know, your character went crazy and killed a bunch of people. So sorry, bro. I'm so sorry, but it's gonna be great. You're gonna you're gonna get a new, something else real soon, and you truly hope the that be- you know wish the best for your 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 peers because it's not a competition. It, it, we're all on the same team, just trying to work, you know, just trying to
2: work. You know, you mentioned the glorious Cassie DePavie. I mean, this woman to my eye is. Is still, I mean, even though she's been, you know, at the top of her game for decades now, she's still very underrated in terms of, in terms of her talent and her, her ability. I mean, talk to me about working with her.
1: I agree with you. I'm actually surprised she's not, uh, she doesn't have a shelf full of Emmys. But I don't really understand the Emmy process yet. I'm still, I still consider myself new. But you know, she is just like the, anyone else. She wants good stories. She she yearns for it. This is what she does. You know, this is how she supports her family, and uh, you know, it's uh, she's just such a, a. But but all of those desires and all of those you know goals for her completely evaporate when she's in front of the camera because she just becomes Blair, and she she's very conscious of the difference between Cassie and Blair. She'll very often say, "Well, Blair wouldn't do that.
2: I would do that, but Blair wouldn't do that," you
1: know, or or vice versa, you know. So it's 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 great to watch. She's just. She's just such a pro. Oftentimes, I will, you know, be up on my lines or, you know, or mess up my blocking. And you can see, I'll, I'll look at, uh, at Cassie, and she's not frustrated or anything, but I so want to impress her, and I so want to make her proud and make her psyched to be working with me that, you know, I get a little bit out of shape if I screw up. Oh, you know, I have to apologize, Cass. I'm so sorry. I I just the other day I was saying this. I'm, I do I take this very seriously. I want you to know, you know. She's like, of course, of course. She's been nothing but sweet, nothing but wonderful. Um, and I'm just, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in soaps. And, and people tell me as much. So <laughs> I'm beside myself, really. She's
2: the best. You know, you broke this earlier, and, you know, whatever you don't want to say about it, you don't have to say about it. But it's no secret that, that One Life has been going through a, shall we say, interesting time the past few months with... You know, some serious cast changes and a major renovation of the canvas and, uh, the, you know, the characters and stories. When you see something like that take place and you're right in the middle of it, what goes through your mind? I mean, do you get nervous and and start looking around and wondering who's next? I mean, what happens to an actor in that kind of situation?
1: No, I mean, we're all kind of rooting for the show to do well. So, you know, again, it's it, you just accept the sort of changes that come because... It's not up to you, you know, it's up to the audience. And the, the changes happen because the audience wants to see the show go a certain way. I, I think, I think that's how it works. Uh, you know, again, the actors are the, the low men on the totem pole, so we we are often not privy to why things happen the way they do. But, uh, you know, I think people are more concerned about soaps in general and how they're disappearing than sure. about how... How our show is, or why, or the ins and outs of why our show are keeping <clears throat> some people and not keeping others. The grand plan is more ratings, more viewers. You know, uh, keep the show on the air, keep this thing going. You know, that's the goal. So I think people, you know, stand and you know, get in get in lockstep with that goal, and uh, we try to reach it together. You know what I mean? Absolutely.
2: Just last month, the incredible Michael Sutton returned to General Hospital for a brief cameo appearance as tragic young hero Stone Cates, some 15 years after Stone's life was claimed by the AIDS virus in one of the most heart-wrenching storylines in daytime history. And on the eve of his return to the show, Michael stopped by Stardish and spoke with me about his excitement over working with Kimberly McCullough again and about his trepidation over stepping back into Stone's difficult shoes. You know, it's been nearly 15 years, but their work was so finely etched, and the storyline so powerfully written and executed that fans to this day still talk about it, the tragic love story of Stone and Robin on General Hospital. And today and tomorrow, viewers will get a rare chance to revisit those memories. Robin finds herself in danger in the current storyline, and in something of a hallucination she is set to conjure up an image of her first love, who is determined to give Robin the will to fight. What a fantastic thrill to welcome to the show today the amazing Michael Sutton.
0: Uh, thank you. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. How are you doing, sir?
0: Really good. Thanks.
2: So tell me how it felt to get this phone call after nearly 15 years. I mean, had you been in touch at all with the G.H. Brass over the years, or did this come completely out of the blue?
0: You know, it came completely out of the blue. I kept up with a lot of the actors that I had worked with, but as far as the production and the producers that changed, I didn't really know who was running it. things at this time. I kind of lost touch with them. So it was a bit of a surprise, but, you know, I guess they kept the character going for 15 years and interactive with the current stars on the show. So Absolutely. So it made sense to the fans, which is the most important thing.
2: You know, GH is one of those shows that's always been pretty good about, you know, honoring their history and kind of, you know, pulling from the past to, you know, kind of inform the current storylines. And so it's, it's great that they're doing this.
0: Absolutely. I give them a lot of credit, you know. There are no boundaries in daytime. So it's great when they explore new things and you know, they did it in a way that was that kept the integrity and uh allowed these two characters that have this great connection to explore some scenes at a time where she's really, you know, in doubt and needs a boost of encouragement and get that second wind and will to survive and live. Sure.
2: You know, given how emotionally draining and and how wrenching the climax of your original GH stint was, did you have any trepidation at all about stepping back into Stone's shoes?
0: Yeah, I mean, not that I didn't know the character inside and out because I do, but just you know, at that point in time, 15 years ago, I was so connected and so tapped into it, and portraying the character day in and day out, you live it. There's just no way around sure. it. It was part of me, and you know, being removed from it my hesitation was, can I get back to the place that was going to be consistent with what it needed to be for that storyline? And, you know, sure enough, when we got up on set, you know, you're you're dressed like Stone and she's dressed like Robin (laughs) and you're on that soundstage and, you know, the eyes start to well up and you're connecting with someone that you've been through the trenches with. We got to the point where I think GH fans are going to uh, at least be reconnected with what
2: was originally done. You know, you and Kimberly, I read that you two hadn't seen each other but, uh, you know, a couple of times in the past 15 years, and yet when the two of you were were back in the arena together, so to speak, that crackling magic just came rushing back.
0: Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. Um, we, we, we talked about it afterwards, and it's just, you know, like any time you've gone through something traumatic in real life, you kind of always have that bond. And as actors, in portraying these characters that we did, I mean, we were you know, prepped as much as we could and given the most incredible professional doctors with the right information and the sensitivity, you know, that the show used back then in telling the story was first rate. However, as actors, we still had to perform something that scared us and was deep and emotional. So the trust that we gained in each other back then was pretty remarkable, and I think you just never lose that, even though it was acting, and as actors, and it wasn't real life, the fact that we had to do something that was bigger than us, and we knew it back then, I'll always have that connection with Kimberly McCullough, and so therefore Robin and Stone, and it just kind of transcends.
2: And, you know, what was great about that was daytime has a, has a tendency to kind of glamorize things and, you know, uh, whitewash things a little bit. And, and GH, at that time, for that storyline, was so dedicated to really presenting it as realistically as possible.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's why it means something today. Um, it was handled the right way back then. And I think that, you know, Kimberly and myself, we really gave 100% of ourselves to it. And I think that's why people care.
2: You know, back in the day, you guys really kind of influenced the attitudes and actions of an entire generation of young people regarding safe sex, regarding HIV testing. Given the horrifying statistics that have been rolling out you know, over the past couple of years with new HIV cases back on the rise, you know, it may be a sad commentary on the State of the Union, but the fact is television can be an extremely powerful and persuasive medium when it comes to transmitting these kinds of messages. Is it time for another show to consider taking a chance on a storyline like this again?
0: You know, I think it definitely is. It is true. It, it's something that isn't going away, and I think it needs to be explored again. You know, I don't know if there is a better vehicle than a soap opera to do it so i don't know if you know a prime time show is going to tackle it in the right way i just don't think that it's the right vehicle i mean think about it in daytime soap you've got fans that watch it day in and day out you bet therefore you're connected in a way where they're part of your lives and that's why it was so true to form because every day was the battle that stone had against you know the disease how to combat it new treatments the whole mental process of preparing for your own mortality at a time when, you know, the character was 19 or so years old and people at that age don't have to deal with a subject matter like that. So the forum in which you're going to tell that storyline with the disease is perfect for daytime. And the thing that is about, you know, we did it, so I don't know if another show is going to tackle it because, you know, we kind of did it and so true to it that I think they stay away from it you know it's like it, yeah. it's been done so i don't know but i i would encourage it i think that you know it's still it still needs to be explored and, and 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 the evolution of where the disease is now you know
2: so do you still get recognized as stone or has enough time passed that it's not really an issue anymore
0: no, I do, which is pretty remarkable. Um, it's it's wild. And I've had my hair every length on the show. I know, I know. You know so, so there's no hiding. I can't, like, say, all right, I'm going to cut my hair off yeah. and people won't recognize me. So they've seen me with long hair, short hair, everything in between. So I'm, I am stone on the streets, that's for sure.
2: In February of 2009, I was thrilled to speak with the sensational Sandra Robinson, who at that time was wrapping up a short stint on Days of Our Lives and who, in my youth, became a daytime superstar portraying rebellious Amanda Corey Fowler on the late great soap Another World. We discussed a lot of things that night, including her day's role and her sitcom guest shots, but our main topics of conversation were her iconic work opposite legends like Doug Watson and Connie Ford and Vicki Wyndham on Another World, as well as her tough time as a recast Felicia Jones Scorpio on General Hospital. The rarest of actresses who found her signature role her first shot out of the box. In 1987, at the tender age of 19, she was cast as Amanda Corey on the NBC classic Another World and was thrust headlong into heavy story with daytime legends like Douglas Watson and Victoria Wyndham and Constance Ford and an icon to be named Robert Kelker Kelly, whose character Sam Fowler would eventually become Amanda's true love and the father of her child, Allie. She left the role six years later, but her mark on the part was so indelible that even though other actresses played Amanda in intervening years, she returned to the show in 1998, a year before its tragic cancellation, to reclaim the role that was rightfully hers. And she's here tonight to talk about what she's up to now and to reminisce about her storied past. Please give a warm welcome to the stunningly gorgeous Sandra D. Robinson.
4: Wow, Brandon, I want to take you with me everywhere and just have you, like, (laughs) introduce me. Like, when I walk into church, I want you to, like... (laughs) You just... (laughs) ahead. <laughs> that was great. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm much better now. I feel I feel awesome now. Thank you. That's great.
2: Let's talk about Another World. What a great show that was. As I said, you were kind of thrust headlong at 19 into heavy story with the legends, not only of that show but of daytime.
4: Yeah. Was it Was it
2: a case where you were kind of Were you not old enough to be really nervous, or were you kind of nervous oh. coming into?
4: I was terribly nervous, but I also had naïve day working for me, (laughs) so I just kind of thought, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what I do, okay, this is great, but at the same time, of course I was nervous, you know, and it was very obvious to me that I didn't know, that I was working with people that were really polished and had been there a long time, and I really didn't know very much, but I was um, enough of a teenage brat that I just sort of went with it. Victoria Windham scared the crap out of me the first time I saw her, and I remember I thought it was very funny because what she chose to wear for the screen test. So this is gonna be. They said this is the woman's gonna be playing your mother, and I turned <laughs> and I looked, and she's wearing like a black drapey thing and black high heeled high boots with like you know straps across them and metal all over them, and okay. she like these leopard pants, and it was just kind of like, wow, <laughs> I know, oh my god. <laughs> out her her son was in a rock and roll band and so she did have, you know, uh, kind of a, a rocker kind of you know, way of dressing sometimes because she would go right to his gigs after work or something like that. But it was very funny. I mean, I think of my mother growing up in Pittsburgh, and she was, like, you know, completely different. My mother wears pastels and, you know, has little curls in her hair. And it's, like, you know, that just is so, it's absolutely not what I expected. So I looked at her and I went, oh, boy. And she did not smile. She wanted nothing to do with this whole screen test stuff. Especially to a girl that was coming up from Pittsburgh, of all places, well, had never done anything. And what was she doing in this room with her? This was literally your first role, yes? It was my first role. I had done, you know, local commercials and modeling and stuff in, in Pittsburgh. And then I met a talent manager who is still my talent manager. It's Vincent Serencion. And he came to Pittsburgh looking for talent. And they actually called me in at the last minute. He went to my agency and said, you know, he read a with a bunch of people, and he said, I don't find anybody here, and she goes, well, there's one girl, but she's not an actress, kind of downplayed me, and he said, Where well, are in, literally called me at, like, 9 o'clock in the morning, and I was in my pajamas, and she said, can you get down here immediately, so, you know, my parents were, like, 35 minutes outside of the city, so I had to get ready and drive down there, and I met with them, and, and started, you know, he just, hey, babes, hey, babes, is the thing he used to say, He to say, hey, babes, yes. <laughs> you got something here, you got something here. And I'm thinking, all right, this is ridiculous. He's like a good character. You know, there's no way. And he's still the same way. And I love him to death because he is exactly that, you know. <laughs> he is a character of himself. And and all the people in the office can do Vincent imitations. It's hysterical. And it, because of him, I came up to New York. My uh, my first screen test was for another soap, actually, called Loving. Okay. And um, so you remember Loving a long time ago. I but remember Loving, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I, I came up. I had one audition, and it went to screen test. And I didn't get it. But before I had even finished getting the news of whether I got it or not, I had another audition for another soap, went to another screen test. Had another audition for another project, went to another screen test. And I just thought, as naive as I was, I thought, well, this is what happens. You read, you go to screen (laughs) tests, you go to network, and you get a job. (laughs) Exactly. It's not quite that way. (laughs) It took me about seven years to pay my dues, but everybody pays them. Yes, it was not the way things always go, but it was fun. Of course. And um, I was still on hold for another soap. I had screen tests for them, and I was actually waiting to hear from another world. And I got called back for the third time to another soap. And I I was out of money because my parents weren't really supporting this. They wanted me to stay in school. And I only had the summer, so I had gone for three months, and I had had, like, five screen tests, which is ridiculous, I know. It must have been the the out-of-town Pittsburgh clothing and the granny boots that I was wearing. I really think it was. You to get a lot of comments on that. Not all the comments were good, but I was memorable. Um, and, uh, yeah, I somehow on my flight up that, you know, I told Vince, this is the last chance that I can do this. I'm out of money now. I flew up, and as I walked into his office, he said, okay, you know, we heard while you were on the plane, that we got news from NBC, and you got the job. Wow. And that that was it. That was the start of it. And I really did, you know, like I said, that's my naiveness. I really thought that this is how things go. Okay.
2: So you're on well, your own I in think. the big city at, at 19. Were you mortified? Were you raring to go? What was what was going on in your mind?
4: I kind of felt like I'm pretty much a fighter, so I was like, okay, I'm ready for it. But I had a bit of culture shock moving directly to New York City from oh, well, my little happy my little happy country hometown outside of Pittsburgh. That's a lot different. I mean, you know, you ask for directions and people look the other way. It's like, okay. Meanwhile, like, I spent several months up in New York and I went home and there's a whole – Pittsburgh is not an easy town to get around, okay, people? It's like, I don't know who mapped it all out, but it's really ridiculous. And my whole life I lived there and I had to go back for some project. I had to go to the north side of town, which is really confusing, and, like, the streets start – then they change names and they start up again and anybody from Pittsburgh who's this thing is going, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I got lost. I mean, I was following Fifth Avenue and the next thing I know it's something else and, you know, I had to find Fifth Avenue. And, and somebody sees me struggling and, and I said, I think I pulled up to a guy at a light and I, I had him roll the window down and I said, can you tell me where I can, you know, find Fifth Avenue again? And he goes, he actually went so far to he go, here, I'll take you there, follow me. He really wow. did. Like, and then he got out. Of, he got out of the car at the light, and he goes, "Are you okay?" And I looked at him like, "For real? You just like what?" <laughs> you know. And I love that. I love that. That's the kind of people that I grew up with. But from that going to New York, you know, with New York, then I think was a lot colder even than it is now, as far as like people talking to one another and all that. But, um, so it was a little tough. It was a little tough how
2: for long, me. How long did it take you to get your bearings?
4: I don't think I even got my bearings for the first four years that I was there. I was a bit of a slow learner. But my bearings as far as the job took about four years, really, until I thought, okay, they're writing heavier stuff for me and I really need to, I was getting more of a serious storyline and I really needed to, you know, hone my chops in this acting stuff and, and you know, I can't float through it anymore. And so I, I really started, you know, really applying myself, which is good. But as part of being my first job, I sort of had to grow up on camera with, my skills and stuff, which is really painful. When I first heard that Another World was back on the air, I thought, that's it, I'll never work again. (laughs) I am done. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? It was
2: was great fun watching all those old shows again. It was hysterical.
4: Oh, my husband just transferred a ton of our VHS tapes to DVD, Mm -hmm. and he was watching them, and he goes, do you have any? And I kind of don't have a lot of that stuff in my possession. My mom has a lot of it, but for some reason I had a couple of things that my dad had recorded back on VHS and I gave it to my husband along with a few other movies and things that I had done and I said you can transfer these things. I didn't think he would actually sit and watch them. He thought it was hysterical. I came home and he was telling me old storylines and he goes Amanda Fowler with the weave of the hair and the earrings and the shoulder pads. I'm like okay. The one thing I remember at the wardrobe from Another World was they always they had a pink blazer and I was still a rebellious teenager even though I was 19. I was a little bit immature in a lot of ways, growing up in a small town very sheltered. So I had this I am not gonna wear pink. I was into black lace. Okay? I thought I was Belinda Carlisle. I was absolutely and then working with Vicky Wyndham, who was like this rocker chick, right? emulating yeah. her. So I want like, you know, the black boots with the spikes and the whole thing. Like and I come in and they have a pink blazer for Amanda. And they loved the pink blazer. I hated it. the pink. I hated pink. I didn't want pink anywhere near me. <laughs> it was like always pretty me and it was Thing like I just think back like I remember that pink blazer.
2: Well, you know Amanda Amanda came in as as a nice prim debutante, so you know you have to dress the part.
4: Oh, absolutely. Yes, (laughs) I know I did, and it was very smart of them with the pink blazer and the pearls and the whole thing. But it was just at that time in my own life I couldn't resonate with that. You know,
2: (laughs) one of the best things I ever saw on that show was there was a scene. It was after Douglas Watson had died, and Mm -hmm. uh, the show took a couple of months, and then they had Mac die, and. Rachel went up to, I think it was Maine or somewhere, where Mac was supposedly staying, and he died. And uh, Mac had written her a letter before he died, and she read the letter on air, and oh. just kind of, you know, a single tear just kind of crawled down her cheek, and she kind of accepted the fact that Mac was gone. It was one of the best things I ever saw on that show. Do you have memories of working with Doug Watson?
4: I do, and they're all great. And I was very shy, actually, then. As much as I say that I was like an obnoxious teenager, I, I was actually extremely shy, and particularly when it came to... Adults and opening conversations. He was always very open and and friendly, not that he wasn't, but I, you know, in retrospect, wish I would have initiated more conversations. You know, now that I'm older, I look back and think, wow, the knowledge and and the stories that I probably missed out on, well, every time that he would speak, you know, and tell a story, I would jump in and listen, but I never really sought him out one-on-one you know, or was comfortable talking to him, I was just really immature in that way. And that's my only regret, Is I think I probably could have learned a lot more from him than I did. But he was always such a warm, amazing man. And he and Victoria Wyndham had a great relationship, a great friendship. They were very close. So it doesn't surprise me that having her read that story would affect you, because I'm sure it affected her. Oh, I, I, you, know. you know, his
2: his death, it really... I mean, it's kind of bad to say it, but it really kind of took the air out of that show for a little while just because it was so sudden and so completely unexpected and so tragic. And it was, you know, right at the time when the show was on a high, it was celebrating its 25th anniversary, and, you know, this came totally out of the blue, and it it really kind of took the air out of the show for a while.
4: It was very awkward for me there, too, because I was still relatively new to the whole thing and Mm -hmm. certainly wasn't old enough to have dealt... Well, I would say, when old enough, I just had not had a chance to deal with death at all, yeah yeah, so it was a real experience for me. But uh, out, exactly. I just that I would have been a little bit more yeah. forthright in in you know getting stories from him and learning about mm-hmm. him and I had the opportunity to do that with Connie Ford because her dosing room was right next to mine, and for some reason she took a liking to me, but she was i mean, I don't know if you ever got a chance to know Connie Ford, who played my grandmother on the show for anybody yep. who's listening that doesn't quite remember. She passed away while I was there as well. But we didn't she didn't even let any of us know she was sick. she was such a little you know, spitfire. And it was hysterical because I watched the show of course when I got the job. I started like, you know, watching every day and trying to memorize everybody and every character and I saw the sweet little grandmother and I thought, Okay, great, I get to meet Constant Ford, she plays that sweet little grandmother and I went in and she's just a four letter and fall of fire and I was like, What? <laughs> Telling the director and everybody to shut the heck up and <laughs> You know, and yelling and screaming. <laughs> so if anybody I should have been intimidated by, it was her. But as I walked um, into my dressing room, quite often she would say, you know, Come on in here. You know, kind of like tiptoe in, you know, like, okay. But she had great words of advice, you know, not even so much for working on the show, just words of advice for life in general. And for some reason she kind of took me under her wing. And, and I always felt very protected by this boisterous, loudmouth, ball of fire, that was Connie uh-huh. Ford, and I just, I just adored her, you know, and that was the one thing that I think I can also remember, you know, learning the most about life yeah. from someone on that show, was Connie Ford, you know, she was yeah. very, very funny.
2: One of the things that th- that show always really did well was the relationship between mothers and children, with Ada and Rachel, with Rachel and Amanda, with Felicia and Lorna, I mean, that was really always one of the cornerstones of the show, That that relationship.
4: That actually, I think, is what resonated with the audience more than anything, is that familial relationship that they saw over and over again, and they stayed true to that, which is, I don't really want to uh, critique the writers of any particular show, but I have worked on a show that was on just about that long, and it had been previously based on a lot of family relationships, and yeah. I had always aspired to be on this. Certain show, and when I got there, the family relationships were a joke. They weren't writing that at all. They were writing, you know, I was on a show playing a mother, and my daughters were off, you know, supposedly doing drugs and getting pregnant and doing all these crazy things, and the parents weren't anywhere around. I actually started getting people angry writing into my website saying, you know, why aren't you involved? And I'm thinking, wow, what is happening that we think that this is, well, obviously we don't think it's acceptable, but the the writers of any show would think that that's acceptable. I was really bothered by that. I, I think that I like the family relationships. I like whether there's, you know, discord or whatever, a show like Guiding Light, like Another World. You know, these are shows that have relationships and family things that there may be discord, but there's always that relationship. There's always that awareness that there's going to be a mother... To handle, you know, that there's going to be there's going to be a matriarch or a patriarch of the show that's going to of the you know that's on the show that is the person to listen to. You know, there's a certain order, exactly. a traditional order that I think is very comforting and necessary and good.
2: Daytime is one of those genres where the writers change, the producers change, and so it's really incumbent upon the actors to be true to their characters because they're the only ones who really live with it. No really? matter who's supplying the material, I mean, they're the ones who. Who has to portray it and have to sell it? And so, That's it, true. Um, I
4: learned that. I learned that from Victoria Wyndham actually, back when I first began, because she would, and sometimes much to the uh, to the director's chagrin, she would argue vehemently about a story point because she'd say, I have spent you know ten years with this point of view, and you give me this line, and this isn't going to work. And you know they got very frustrated with her, but I have to say she really did know you know, her character, and she would fight for these things, and the audience also trusted her to be a certain way, you know, after you has been on the show for 20 years or whatever, you kind of have a relationship with the audience that if you were to turn around and do something that was hypocritical, and you're exactly. not in an altered personality, <laughs> you know, the, the audience is going to go, what? You know, and then exactly. the actor is really the one that they get mad at.
2: Late last month, it was my unbelievable honor to speak briefly with a legendarily powerhouse actress named Kim Zimmer, who is just about to make a much-celebrated return to one life to live after spending most of three decades toiling away as Hellcat Hellraiser Riva Shane on Guiding Light. I think you can hear in my voice during this interview that I couldn't quite believe I was actually speaking with this woman whose soul-shattering work I've literally spent my entire life watching and admiring. And even though I only had less than ten minutes to chat with her, we cut a wide swath across the spectrum of her career, past and present. You know, my guest this morning, she doesn't need an introduction, but pardon me while I give her one anyhow. A four-time Emmy-winning legend for her role is Reva Shane, Lewis, Lewis, Spalding Lewis, Winslow, Cooper, Lewis, Lewis, O'Neal, and I may well have missed a Lewis in there somewhere. On the much-loved, much-missed cbs soap guiding light, she's rowing back on the daytime scene with a much-anticipated return to one life to live, The soap that, by her own admission, fired her in 1983, making it possible for her to land the role that would end up making her a daytime icon. She is a brutally frank, brilliantly talented force of nature, and she might kill me for saying that I've literally been a fan of her work and her talent my entire life, and I can't wait to have this chat today with the amazing, the magnificent Kim Zimmer.
3: Oh, my God. I need you to write all of my publicity. (laughs) You are amazing. That introduction was unbelievable. Well, my darling, you are
2: unbelievable. You deserve that and so much more. How are you doing?
3: (laughs) You're a sweetheart.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is a phenomenally stupid question, especially to start out with, but I introduced you as a legend, which you most certainly are. But, you know, I'm wondering if you feel like a legend. I mean, when you analyze your work and your talent as as clinically and objectively as, as is possible, what do you see?
3: Well, I don't necessarily consider myself a legend. I consider the character of Reva Shane a legend. I'm just the actress that played the part. You know, I, I want to go on and do other work and hopefully become a legend in another genre <laughs> at my young age.
2: You know what's funny? You, you did a smashing guest in, on Designing Women, A uh, good Lord, 20 years ago, I guess. And,
3: and oh, it's longer season, than that, doll.
2: That season was just released on DVD last week, and, and that, that's my favorite show of all time. I love that oh, show.
3: Oh, I didn't know that. Great.
2: And so I've been I've been watching that season this past week, and, and I watched yours a couple days ago, and, and wow, what an amazing cast you got to play with there.
3: Yeah, that was a terrific time. They treated me very well because they were kind of testing me out to see if there was a possibility that they were going to create a show around Hal Holbrook, Dixie Carter's husband at the time. Uh-huh. And uh, they were looking at me to play a May-December romance with him in this new pilot that ended up being something else with Burt Reynolds and uh, Mary Lou Henner, I think. Sure, and, sure, the great and, evening
2: scene, yeah.
3: Yeah, that's it. And Hal ended up being kind of a secondary character in that as well. So that gotcha. it never came to fruition for me, but that was okay because I had my life at GL.
2: So absolutely. You know, the last two years of Guiding Light, speaking of that, it was kind of like guerrilla television in many ways. And I'm, I'm oh wondering my God. If, if the bizarre working conditions ever made you, did they make you doubt what you were capable of in that, as an actress, or did they reinforce your confidence in what you could do?
3: Oh, they uh, they reinforced the confidence level. As miserable as all of that was, it strengthened all of us as a cast and a crew together. Sure. We had a lot of giggles during <laughs> during that time. Uh, there were what? a lot of giggles and a lot of bad language. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but how else are you going to get through it?
3: Exactly, humor carried us through Oof. all of that. So. You know, my
2: understanding is that One Life is a streamlined, well-oiled machine. and that Oh, it's scene. so
3: nice to be back to that. I mean, my first day they stopped a scene that we were doing to do it over again, and I said, oh, was it something I did? And they said, no, 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 we just want to improve the lighting. And I was like, oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> this you is know, coming fantastic. From of,
2: coming from the end of GL where you guys were running around parks and fields and chasing sunlight and dodging traffic, how was it working on a show of this of this expertly produced caliber again with real cameras and real sets and real everything.
3: You know, it's like being back in 1980, you know. (laughs) I feel like I've been thrown back into the golden era of daytime television, which I thought I'd never see again. As far as all of the soaps, you know, there was a time when they were talking about what we were doing at Guiding Light as the new formula to keep these shows on the air. But nobody bit. Thankfully, nobody bit. You know, and it's, there are still enough executive producers out there that want to make pretty pictures and want to give the fans the best possible quality of show that they can. They haven't lowered themselves to the standards of producing it on a wing and a prayer. Absolutely. You know.
2: You know, some people still understand that it really is all about escapism. <laughs> you know, people don't really watch these shows to, to to see their real life on the screen. They they have enough real life in their real life.
3: Absolutely. But dang a dang, you hit the nail right on the head there.
2: You know, uh, people are buzzing about this thing of, of can Landview possibly be big enough for Erica Slazak, like Robin Strosser, and Kim Zimmer and you know, I kinda of find that ridiculous because Springfield back in the day was big enough for Beverly McKenzie and Maeve Kincaid and Maureen Garrett and Kim Zimmer, but you know, right? What do you make of the silliness of people always trying to find trouble where there plainly is none?
3: Well, that's where it's come to with the internet and the freedom of speech on the internet—the whole thing that you know you can put something out there and create chaos with one comment, and that's where they get their power. Of course there's room for the three of us. We're all consummate actresses that love the idea of being challenged by each other. It's not a competition. It's how can we pull the best performances out of each other to get it on the screen and thrill fans with it. You know, I'm sure there are fans of One Life to Live that don't even know who I am, who are fearful because of this four-time Emmy winner coming on and stealing airtime, but in reality... Frank Valentini, the executive producer, was wise in that he's hoping that it will stimulate storyline for those sure. of two women.
2: The flip side is that the We of Soaps guys did a countdown earlier this year of the 50 best daytime actresses ever. And, you know, Robin was number five, Erica was number three, and you were two. Right. It's, it's pretty incredible that you're all on the same show at the same time now.
3: I know. Isn't that wonderful? It was very funny. Yesterday in the makeup room, Hillary Bailey Smith walked in, and it was... Sitting in the makeup room, the only people in there were me, Gina Tonioni, who's on the show now, Jessica Lachia, and Jerry Verdorn. And Hillary (laughs) walked in and said, oh, my God, I've walked into the wrong makeup room. (laughs) We're all from Guiding Light.
2: (laughs) So your character, Echo Savoy. what can you tell us about her exploits these days? What has this gal been up to in her time away, and what brings her back to Landview?
3: she's coming back uh of course she's broke she has no money so she comes back why she comes back to landview to try to get a job is beyond me i mean i guess she's got that big of balls you know that she thinks vicky's going to give her a job at the banner because she had a job there before you know so it makes total sense so she shows up on vicky's doorstep and who opens the door but charlie banks who she had had relations with in atlantic city which is where she's spent most of her time since leaving landview gotcha and she's still an international photographer you know that's supposedly you know what she's been doing with her time but why she has no money is still a secret i have no idea
4: Gotcha.
3: okay (laughs) there's still a lot of it that we haven't figured out (laughs) maybe she's a gambler you know who knows (laughs) so i don't know what that part of the story is but she does come back with a secret that could change the lives of a lot of people in landview so gotcha
2: okay so I think you're working primarily with Brian and Erica.
3: In the beginning, but lately I've been doing a lot of stuff with Jerry Verdorn, and I do have wonderful scenes with Robin Strasser too. And I've been working with J.P. Levasseur, which has been great. And you know, I've, I've just I've been getting spread out, so. My byline is that nobody will let me in their front doors. All of my, A lot of my scenes are played in the door frames of front people's front doors because everyone's afraid to let me in. So that's that's been a trip. I've gotten to know everybody's front doors very well.
2: Well, I just want to tell you before I let you go, last year, just before Guiding Light ended, I managed to track down your old buddy, Pam Long.
3: Oh, yes, I know, and I, t- I heard your interview with her.
2: You know, she came on my show to reminisce about the old days, and she told me a hilarious story about you two going out to dinner one night in yes. New York and – and that you yes, were you were mad at her book. over something that Reba was doing, and, and <laughs> she said you two ended up having a screaming match right there in the middle of the restaurant.
3: I know, and if, and I actually um, pulled up your interview the other day because I wanted to make sure that she had the same story I had because I'm writing it. I'm writing about it <laughs> in my book that I'm that is coming out in the spring. So um, you're a trip, and you're, you're very good at what you do. Thank you so much, Brandon. I appreciate it. You are the best, my dear. Thank you. You are too.
2: I've got to tell you, when that woman who is so blisteringly and impenetrably great at what she does took that moment to tell me I am very good at what I do, I literally felt like a Catholic must feel after he or she gets blessed by the Pope. No matter whether it's for my own show or for the show of a dear friend of mine, I hope it's clear when you listen to something that has my name on it that I work extremely hard in the quest of creating a final product that is compelling and entertaining. I do make a little money putting the show together, but it's certainly not enough to radically change anyone's lifestyle, and so the work kind of has to be its own reward. And when someone takes a moment whether it's a person I've just interviewed or a random stranger who happens to be listening, to say, good job, that stuff is like gold to me and to all of us who do this kind of work. And speaking for myself, I I deeply and profoundly appreciate everybody, the stars and fans alike, who have reached out and said thanks. And please believe me when I tell you the feeling is absolutely mutual. Let me tell you quickly how to find Joanne's show, Stardust Radio. The show's main base is www.blogtalkradio.com/slash. Stardish. From there, you can access every episode of her show. They are all archived from front to back, and she's done over 230 episodes chatting with the likes of legends like David Canary and Robin Strasser, Twilight star Taylor Lautner, uh, Kelly Ripa, Tom Bosley, Ted McGinley. She truly puts together a terrific, fun, brilliantly entertaining talk show, and she speaks with some of the most interesting actors and performers of our lives. And again, you can find her at blogtalkradio.com stardish. Uh, Since you're listening right now, you probably already know that you can find my show, Brandon's Buzz, at blogtalkradio.com slash brandonsbuzz. And as with Joanne, you can find all of my episodes there, and you can leave comments, you can send emails, you can do everything at blogtalkradio.com slash brandonsbuzz. Uh, Joanne and I both have our own personal websites, which can also contain a trove of information about our respective shows. And both websites are easy to remember because they both bear the names of our respective shows. Uh, Joanne can be found at www.stardishradio.com, and you can find me at brandonsbuzz.com, and you can find information about and listen to both of our shows at each of those two sites. We can also be found in the iTunes Music Store, from where all of our episodes can be downloaded as podcasts. From the main page of the store, just type Stardish in the search box to get to Joanne, or Brandon's Buzz to get to me, and scroll down to the podcast section in either case. Uh, And you can find us there, of course, in the the podcast section. And uh, uh, finally, we are both all active on Facebook, on Twitter, on all the social media sites. Just Google Stardish for Joanne or Brandon's Buzz for me, and you will absolutely find something that brings you in our direction. And speaking for both of us, we both deeply appreciate you all finding us and listening to us. And for me, I sincerely hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz.
3: Hi everybody out there, this is Eileen Kristen and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check it out. Hey,
2: guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi,
4: this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me.
3: (laughs) So if you feel that you just can't take it and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Mia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody.
1: This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.